0: Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching
1: for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say cold war, we say cold Pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say cold war, we say cold Pink. Code pink.
0: This is Emma's Revolution, and this is Carly Town, National Co-Director at Code Pink, and you are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C., and now KPFT-FM in Houston. Thank you for joining us for today's show. If this is your first time joining us, Code Pink is a women's led anti-war group that is organizing across the country to put an end to US funded militarism around the world. We're here to challenge imperialism, capitalism and war with the goal of creating a world of justice, peace and equality. Achieving justice requires that each and every one of us joins together in solidarity to demand a better world. It requires us to understand that the struggle against US imperialism is also a struggle against police brutality and anti-immigrant animus. The anti-war movement is also a struggle for peace, and we can't have peace if we don't advocate for workers' rights, women's rights, environmental justice, and racial justice. If you're listening to this show, you've already taken the first step in being part of a movement for all of these struggles. Before we get into our interviews for today, let's talk a little bit about some really important news that's been happening over these past few weeks. If you have read the news or seen anything out of Hawaii this week, you will know that it has not been a great week for the U.S. Navy. Did you hear the important news? So on January 10th, the Navy agreed to submit a plan for defueling the massive Red Hill jet fuel tanks, which poisoned a main water source on Oahu. So while the U.S. Navy has publicly stated they will comply with the mandate coming from the Department of Health to defuel the Red Hill fuel storage tanks. We have to remain vigilant. Until the president and the secretary of defense declares that the fuel tanks will be immediately and permanently closed, the possibility of the Department of Defense filing a lawsuit um, on the ridiculous grounds of quote, national security, to have the tanks repaired and reopened is a strong possibility. Uh, And that means, you know, we have to continue to support the incredible work from groups like the Oahu Water Protectors, Hawaii Peace and Justice, the Sierra Club of Hawaii, and the community of Oahu, and people uh, like our supporters at Code Pink who went to our website to sign our petition. You can go to www.codepink.org to sign our petition, calling for the immediate and permanent closure of the Red Hill fuel storage tanks. So in other news um, related to the Pentagon budget, maybe you've heard, but Congress has yet to pass a regular appropriations bill for the Pentagon or any other federal agency, meaning that the federal government is currently being funded through a mechanism that's called a continuing resolution. So just a little bit of background, Um, every year, Congress is in charge of debating and passing appropriations legislation that funds more than $1.5 trillion in annual government spending, right? Almost every year, Congress fails to to do this job on time, right? Um, Appropriations bills are technically due by October 1st of each year, because that's when a new fiscal year starts. But Congress is almost always late. And when they are late, lawmakers usually pass what's called a continuing resolution, like I mentioned, which funds government programs at the same levels as the immediately previous fiscal year, right? So Congress hasn't done its job. Um, We're now in a point where we're using a continuing resolution. What does that mean, right? And why is this even important? Well. Federal agencies, including the Department of Defense, have been operating under a continuing resolution for the current fiscal year, uh, 2022, since its beginning in October 1st of 2021. The current continuing resolution runs until February 21st of 2022 and funds federal programs at 2021 levels, which really means, right, that Congress still hasn't done its job to actually pass a budget They have been so deadlocked that they cannot come to a conclusion. So again, right, this might seem like a technicality, Um, but actually this is a hot button issue. So much so that the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense recently held an entire committee hearing on the quote, impact of continuing resolutions on the Department of Defense and our national security. A report out from the Government Accountability Office, known as the GAO, thoroughly investigated the effect that funding the government through a continuing resolution might have on the Pentagon budget, right? And they published this study in September of 2021. And they found that the Department of Defense regularly implements practices that mitigate the effects of continuing resolutions, which at the end of the day, make sure that they avoid any of the harm that might otherwise have been anticipated from operating under these conditions. In fact, right, the Government on Accountability Office found activities related to preparing for and operating under continuing resolutions have become routine in nature and are an expected part of the Department of Defense annual planning and budget related tasks. So, what does this all mean, right? Why would the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense hold an entire meeting to address this? Because for years now, right, military officials and lawmakers, have complained about having a continuing resolution, which again, right, means that we're funding at the same level as last year. They complain about how this affects military quote unquote readiness, right? And if you really look into these arguments, you'll understand what people are saying here is basically we can't do our jobs unless we get more and more and more and more funding every year right? Those same military officials and those same lawmakers are making that same argument every time we have a discussion about the Pentagon budget year after year, right? And we have to be able to speak back to that line of thinking, right? That some nebulous idea of quote-unquote military readiness depends on handing the Pentagon billions and billions and more funding every year. And so the bottom line is, We won't get anywhere unless we address the fact that members of congress across both aisles have pockets awash with cash from lobbyists who work for military contractors and those same lobbyists will be working overtime this year to sneak more and more money into the pentagon budget for companies that make a killing on killing we're never going to match the dollars from those lobbyists right so if we're going to win we need the people that actually put these politicians into office to really turn up the pressure, right? Which is why we have been working to grow our work to cut the Pentagon for people, peace, and planet at Code Pink, right? Since the beginning of Code Pink, we've been in the streets and the halls of Congress using our creativity to disrupt war for profit and destruction. And that's why we continue to build a big tent to mobilize vigils, marches, sit-ins, teach-ins, demonstrations, and other types of direct actions across this country, wherever we can find war profiteers and weapons manufacturers calling on our members of Congress to cut the Pentagon for people, peace, and planet. I would really encourage everyone listening to go to www.cutthepentagon.org to sign up and join this growing movement so now on to today's show Um, i'm so excited that today we're going to hear from two inspiring guests so first we'll hear from former presidential candidate and best-selling author marianne williamson on the crisis of spending more in our military than the next 12 countries combined then um, we'll get a chance to hear from braxton brewington who's the press secretary at an organization called the debt collective And Braxton will talk a lot more about the connection between the student debt crisis and U.S. militarism. So I'm so excited to hear from both of our guests. And without further ado, let's get right into this important conversation.
2: So we know that uh, Marianne is on a tight schedule. So we're going to turn the floor over to Marianne to talk about student debt and militarism and her reflections on the Biden presidency, on anything she wants to talk about, really. (laughs) Marianne, welcome.
1: Oh, oh, Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to see you and to see some new friends and some old friends who are here tonight. I think the conversation that everybody's having is the interconnectivity uh, between and among so many of the stresses on the average person today. Uh, whether it has to do with toxins in our food or whether it has to do uh with uh, the difficulty of getting health care whether it has to do with the high price of pharmaceutical drugs whether it has to do uh with a inability to get an education, whether it has to do with the fact that people have to work more than one job just to be able to survive, whether it has to do with the college loans, or whether it has to do with runaway militarism, or whether it has to do with violence on our streets and the high rates of poverty. People understand that all of these are tentacles that come from uh, one source. And that source, of course, has to do with this chokehold that a corporatist mentality um and matrix of corporate aristocratic powers has on our democracy whether it has to do with big pharmaceutical companies or big insurance companies big oil big agriculture big chemical companies big tech companies gun manufacturers or um military industrial uh uh complex and defense contractors we we spend all of our time kind of playing whack a mole like where can we fight it off here where can we fight it off there But I think people are beginning to understand two very important things. Number one, this common source of the fact that short-term profits for all of those multinational corporate interests is now the bottom line. It is now served, even if at the expense of not only instead of, but even at the expense of the health and the safety and the well-being of the American people and the planet on which we live. The second thing is um, takes it even to a darker place, and that is how much our own government works at the behest of those corporate forces, the undue influence of corporate money on our political system has turned our Congress and in too many cases even the White House into a system of legalized bribery Uh, to the extent that at this point looking to the government to save us this kind of like we're, we're begging you know the woman before we got on was talking about how she she writes to her congressman he doesn't even bother to answer so I think that we're living at a time of You know, there's one of my favorite books is a book called Letters to a Young Poet by the poet Rilke. And he says, sometimes you don't have an answer, an immediate answer, but you live the question. Uh, Americans are very good with a to do list where people who have proven historically just tell us what to do about a problem and we'll fix it. You know, like you could look at World War II, you could look at the Nazis and the Japanese Imperial Army and liken them to to a, a tumor they were malignant tumors that could be and were by a former generation brilliantly removed surgically the problems we have today are more like a cancer that has metastasized and it's wrapped around some healthy organs so it's not as simple as oh, well this is we do this and then we do this and then we do this and we do this we could say yeah well we got to get the money out of politics and then we look and we see that the supreme court is completely has already been for all intents and purposes at least for the time being, uh, so uh, taken over by the corporatist forces that we're not going to be able to uh, override Citizens United anytime soon, and on and on and on. But I think that what organizations like yours, Medea and Marcy and all of you who are working with Code Pink, have been doing for years and are doing now, uh, is awakening people. And I think that uh, everybody on this call, and I think millions of people around this country, more and more and more, our awakening uh to the uh severity of the problems that confront us this is not just one thing or two things or three things we can absorb it we can fix it there'll be a piece of legislation here a piece of legislation there we're going to have to have a whole new level of thinking a whole new level of courage um and some real thinking outside the box um to be able to uh, not to, It's more than, than pushing back against the forces of corporatism and unfettered capitalism. It is um, truly forging a new way because the question is no longer do the Republicans fix it or do the Democrats fix it. Um, they are more similar than they are different in the ways that we're talking about here tonight. Um, this is the, the, the two party corporatist, two party uh, duopoly is itself a problem. Um, We're Americans, though. I have a lot of faith in us. It wasn't reasonable to assume uh, that abolition could succeed, but it ultimately did. It wasn't reasonable to assume women could uh, gain suffrage, but ultimately they did. It wasn't reasonable to assume that uh, segregation could be dismantled, but it ultimately was. And um, I think this is going to be a year of such a rising of of consciousness and activism on the part of the American people that we're gonna turn the ship around. We have to, or we will lose our democracy and we could lose a lot more than that.
2: Thank you, eloquently put, Marianne. Uh, Medea wants to say a few words about you and uh, share your background, which uh, we are so proud of what you've done. So Medea,
3: take it away. Well, um, I I think, everybody knows you as the presidential candidate but uh i've known you for decades as the spiritual leader and somebody who's written 14 books and each book that you write is just beautiful Uh, i was always when when, when, before you ran for president i I, and i hear you talk i would just sit with my mouth open like how does she just say all this stuff (laughs) and um you know so brilliant Uh, and so so spiritual and so deep. And I thought it was such an amazing uh, opportunity for the people of this country to hear you. And uh, I know you have now millions and millions of followers after that run. Uh, We do hear rumors about you maybe even running against Biden. Uh, I don't know if people got a chance to see a Politico article that came out about that, but I know you've used your uh, your your uh, soapbox in an incredible way to educate people about what's wrong with the system. Is there any truth to that rumor and how do you feel about um, your last run? I think it would just be nice to hear your reflections.
1: Well, those are two very separate questions. In terms of the first <laughs> question, you know, the media likes to Concentrate on the horse race, who might run. And I think for those of us who care about the things we talk about uh, on a on a panel like tonight, it's not about who, it's about what. The what is what's important, and the what is the voice standing in the electoral space um, that really speaks for the yearnings and the hopes and the well-being of the American people and of the planet and of people around the world who are impacted by American policy. Uh, so I think I have the same level of commitment to that what that everybody else here does uh what part I might play in that uh I'm not clear about but uh that I am willing and desirous of playing whatever role would be best I am clear about and I to you also and to Marcy uh you know we've all been at this for a long time um and I don't think, by the way, you know, that article was contextualized as in challenging Biden. I think it's very important. We need to challenge the duopoly. So I think that whether I do run again, while it's an open question in my mind and my heart, um, whether I would run, you know, you asked me how my my um, experience was running for president. And and I've said this a few times before I learned how corrupt the system is, and I learned how wonderful people are. Um, you know, the American people are not the problem. I mean, if you, if you look at poll after poll and you look where people actually sit in this country, we're a little left of center. The problem is not the will of the American people. If our Congress is doing the will of the American people, uh, we wouldn't be in the shape that we're in. Um, so, when you talk about primary and Biden, I mean that that's that's the level of their imagination. And I'm not sure you know I even even if I were to run I don't know if you should run as a Democrat where we are very clear now after what they did to Bernie in both 2016 to 2020, and I have my own experience of it. You're not letting a progressive get anywhere near um, uh, the platform of being the candidate. On the other hand, we know the problems that can exist with a, I don't even want to call it third party. I think we need another party. once again, I think the the hostage taking by the duopoly at this point is a problem. So even if I do run, I don't know um, uh, what that would look like, but um, I don't know. I'm sure that everybody here is holding the same question in their heart. How can I best serve at this time?
0: Well, I know we're going to get
3: with Braxton into the nitty gritty of the uh, issue about the student debt, but I wonder if you could say something about um, this example, because it is an example of grassroots pressure and how it uh forces biden to do something like he has to do. No, it doesn't. That's today.
1: that's yeah, that's the problem we have today. Look at something like uh Black Lives Matter. It was the largest uh protest movement in the history of the United States and it did not lead to one fundamental legislative change. At this point, that's really the conundrum we're in. Our Congress and White House work so much at the behest of these corporate forces, that it doesn't matter what we do. That's why these really have to be nonviolent revolutionary times. You talk about, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. You know, To me, the student loan debt is emblematic of something larger than just the student loan debt. I don't think there's ever been a generation of Americans where the government itself did so much to thwart the dreams of our youth what the hell if, if, if you look at how a family runs you're, you 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 raise your children you want to set your children up to win i feel like the way we look at american children now the way we look at american youth now they just want to rise up how can we just and our government acts like how can i put my leg out in front of you so that you're going to trip all these kids want to do is get out there start businesses create be productive and we're just sitting on top of them this is such a perversion. Of, of of moral values. And but I am overthinking if we just elect a Democrat, that's gonna fix it. You know, somebody said to me, Peter Hager, who was on the um, Generational Change podcast, he said something the other day that I thought was really interesting. He said, as it turns out, Trump was not the wake-up call. Biden is the wake-up call. Because we're realizing, even if you do elect the Democrat, you're still not getting your your um, minimum wage lifted. You're still not getting any kind of cut or even serious conversation about militarism uh, in 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 our society. And they think we're so dumb that if you know, I mean, that you you look at the Afghanistan, the end of the Afghanistan war, but then the budget didn't go down. The budget went up. Uh, even with the Democratic president, we're not talking about uh, cancellation of the college loan debt, even with a Democratic president, you know, he could, if he wished to expand Medicare tonight, if he wished to, he could free Julian Assange tonight, if he wished to, uh, he could work seriously for that $15 an hour minimum wage, if he wished to, uh, he could cancel the, the debt, etc. I, I, I'm over just hoping that if we uh, elect a Democrat, it's going to change. We have to realize that the si- the system is so saturated by, um, uh, by the undue influence of these corporate forces. We need to have a nonviolent revolutionary spirit at this point. So
0: Marianne, tell us a little bit about how we can revitalize the anti-nuclear movement. <laughs>
1: Oh, you know, it's so interesting that you say that. When I was young, and look at someone like Medea, I mean, we've been at this, she and I have known each other for so many years. When we were young, we used to uh, walk down the street with these huge banners that said, Ban the Bomb. Today, out of exhaustion and out of ignorance, which is too often willful ignorance, people aren't even trying. We have over seven thousand nuclear bombs that we know of in this country. Um, we have ordered from the Air Force uh, one hundred. The Air Force has ordered uh, one hundred B twenty-one raiders, uh, each at five hundred and sixty million dollars. And one of the things that's quite unique about the B twenty-one raiders is that they drop not only nuclear, not only conventional bombs, but also uh, nuclear bombs. So we we have to open our eyes here to to what we're saying here we order we're ordering at 560 million dollars each 100 airplanes that drop nuclear bombs. Now, surely, this is not for national security, you drop five of those and it's over for human civilization, as we know it, you drop 10 of those it's over for the species on this planet. So at this point, the nuclear industry is such a multi-trillion dollar um, a business and it's sort of behind the curtain. We're not even talking about it. So it's not even just as Marcy was saying, well, we're 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 getting active about this or that. Like you said, we're not even active on it. This is how sick the whole thing has gotten. This is how corrupt the whole thing has gotten. And I would prefer that we have we really allow ourselves to take it in. Now, I am not someone who's coming from a place of let's all then get nihilistic, cynical and depressed about it. Be, and that goes back to uh, the spiritual. I do believe that the moral arc of the universe though long bends towards justice. I do believe uh in miracles. I do believe that you know, we've faced tough times before and we can face them again. But you know, with everybody talking about the existential threat uh to the to the species that is posed uh, by, um, by big oil and environmental destructiveness, let's be very clear, runaway US militarism is also an existential threat, uh, conceivably, possibly even to our species. And once again, I wanna throw out this huge kudos to Medea Benjamin, who has been on this when it was a popular thing to say, and when it wasn't a popular thing to say, and her optimism, I just always like, there in the day, I say, saying the worst news in the world with that big smile on her face, but it's true. And so I think the answer to your question is that we all have to wake up and speak up. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel that we have in this country, and I felt this when I was running for president, the American people are not stupid. You have a political system that talks to them like they're stupid, but people are not stupid. And I think just as there are political forces, such as our former president who harnessed the worst aspects of the American character for political purposes. We have to harness the best aspects of the American character for political purposes. And, you know, some of us, I'm sure on, on, on this, in this group tonight, are parents, uh, and even if we're not parents, we have younger people in our, in our families, our homes, and we know what it's like to, to say certain things will not happen in this house. We won't allow it. We won't stand for it and that's how we have to get we have to get that fierce aspect of character this has to stop and when enough of us get there you say how do we do it that we support each other in that enough with coddling our neuroses and our pathologies and our victimization we have to forgive each other we have to realize we're not going to all agree with each other but we we can talk in honorable ways to each other and we have to create a politics of hope and nobility and intelligence but let me tell you something when we do harness a politics of hope and nobility and intelligence we will in a very kind way take no shit any further
2: no more it's got to stop that's right Marianne can you talk a little bit about uh your book about miracles and how that might relate to motivating people to have hope and to continue and to be relentless in this pursuit of peace?
1: You know, there are universal spiritual themes that are at the heart of all the great uh, religions of the world and all the great spiritual philosophies of the world, and they all rest on the same core principle, and that is the expansion of the human heart. And when the human heart expands, the human brain performs intelligently and in a life-sustaining way. What has happened uh, as a product of of the Industrial Revolution and the entire um, explosion of a very materialistic, Western materialism in the 20th century Industrial Revolution, et cetera, there has been this um, dangerous, perilous disconnection of head and heart. Uh, in the 20th century, we became so mesmerized by things of the external world. And the 20th century was dominated by a, um, a Newtonian physics, where the world was looked at as just a big machine. And if you had a problem, you just tweaked the pieces of the machine. Well, it's true that the scientific method, Western materialism, et cetera, did solve a lot of humanity's problems in the 20th century, but it also caused a lot of new ones. As we enter the 21st century, we are embracing a far more integrative, holistic, whole person perspective, where we realize that our disconnection from love is what is at the root cause of our disconnection from nature, our disconnection from each other, our disconnection from the young. We have have leaked our reverence and our devotion our sense of ethics, our sense of mercy, our sense of justice, our sense of love. As Gandhi said, the problem with the world is that humanity has gone insane. Humanity is not in its right mind. Now, what all of the great, whether it is uh, the, the uh, Moses standing at the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea, whether it is Jesus and the healing the sick, all of the great religious systems speak of the fact that when love is expanded, the time-space continuum as we know it is transcended that we are not locked within this box of material reality quite the way we think it is when our minds expand uh to a more noble and loving perspective different synapses start to work you start to find yourself in relationship to uh people uh in collaboration with whom you have exponentially more powerful um Uh, effect on the world around you. You know, look at the human body. Every cell is led through a kind of natural intelligence to collaborate with other cells to serve the healthy functioning of the organ and the organism of which they are part. Every once in a while, for reasons that scientists understand to some extent to other extents do not understand a cell as it were goes insane it disconnects from that natural intelligence and it goes off to do its own thing that's cancer that's a malignancy. And that's what has happened to human consciousness. It is a malignancy of consciousness. We have forgotten we're here to collaborate with each other. We're here to work together to serve something bigger than who we are individually. A cancer cell is a cell that says, no, I don't want to serve the healthy functioning of the lungs. I want to go off and do my own thing. And it surrounds itself with other sick cells. That's called the tumor. And the same thing happens in civilization. So we have to go back to the healed perspective that you see in nature where every part of the ecosystem is here to work with other cells in the ecosystem to serve something bigger than ourselves. And when we have that, nature is intelligent. Nature, the body has an immune system. The body can take an amazing amount of assault and injury as long as the immune system is healthy. The psyche can take an amazing amount of heartbreak and trauma as long as the psychic immune system is healthy. And this is what civilization is. We have we have to be the immune cells now. As we do, we find ourselves, I felt it when I saw you the other night, Medea. You know, it's like you and I, um, you and I always have been kind of saluting across the airwaves, right? Hi, we like pass each other in the hall as it were, you know, I know you're out there, or you know, I'm out there. But then what's happening now is a lot of people are meeting new people or getting together with other people and we're coming together and we're all being sort of inwardly guided to things that we can do this coming year. And yes, that's what miracles are all about. It's about new synapses in the brain, new possibilities in the society uh, that will occur because
0: we devote ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. This is Carly Town with Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 Washington DC, and now KPFT FM in Houston. So we're going to take a short musical break with one of my favorite songs, Sisters by Natalie Press.
3: i the brother's shoes
0: Sisters by Natalie Prass and this is Carly Town with Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 Washington DC and now KPFT FM in Houston. So I'm so excited to hear from our next guest Braxton Brewington who is the press secretary from the Debt Collective, about the connection between the student debt crisis and U.S. militarism. You might be surprised at how many connections Braxton can make. So take it away, Braxton. Um, our next guest on Code Big Congress, as Mar- uh, Marcy already mentioned, is Braxton Brewington, who's the press secretary of the Debt Collective, which is a student debt Uh, union urging President Biden to sign an executive order cancelling student loan debt held by the federal government. Um, Braxton worked as a communications lead for the Democratic parties of Georgia and North Carolina and served as a field organizer for US Senator Cory Booker's presidential campaign. Uh, He was also a democracy fellow with Common Cause where he worked to galvanize students to become civically engaged by registering them to vote on campus and organized marches to the Poll and Lobby Congress. Welcome Braxton, take it away please.
4: Awesome, thank you so much for having me and thank you all, um, everyone for your activism. Um, I don't know how I'm supposed to go after those profound words (laughs) by Marianne, but I will do my best to try to hone in on uh, the student debt crisis. Um, So again, my name is Braxton. I am an organizer with the Debt Collective the Debt Collective um, has its roots in Occupy Wall Street. I think I saw Astra Taylor in the chat. She's our co-founder. Um, so the Debt Collective has its roots in Occupy Wall Street, and we are a debtors union. We're the nation's first debtors union. So what that means is like a labor union, right, where workers join together to demand better working conditions, higher pay, um, you know, improved sense of um, morale among the workers. We believe that debtors can do the same. We believe debtors can band together and use the collective power of our financial debts, which we actually see as assets, right? We see our debts as assets. We believe we can come together and demand write downs, to demand outright cancellation, to demand transformations to the economy, right? So we want to eliminate student loan debt, medical debt, we, we want housing for all. We're demanding an end to payday loans and all of these. Carceral debt, all of these types of debt, but also we want to transform the economy so that people don't have to borrow to make ends meet in the first place. So we believe that a debtor's union and the power of debtors coming together, that's exactly what we can do. So we're the nation's first debtors union. You can join for as low as $0 a month. We're a debtors union. So you can join, but we can also contribute what you can. And together we believe, you know, there's power in our numbers. There's this capitalist saying that we quote all the time that says, if you owe the bank $100,000 that the bank owns you. But if you own, if you owe the bank $100 million, you own the bank. And so we believe collectively we own the bank with our financial leverage. So I don't wanna be long. I'm just gonna talk a little bit about student loan debt and, and sort of where we are in our crisis today. I'm sure it's been in the news quite a bit. So we are demanding the, the abolition of multiple types of debt, but right now we're definitely focused on student loan debt. We've been running this campaign for a few years now. So about 95% of student debt is held by the federal government. So the rest are private loans. Those can sometimes get a bit tricky, but what's sort of amazing about this, type of, this debt type is that the creditor is not JP Morgan or, um, you know, some other private company, it's the federal government. And so um, our um, idea is to pressure the federal government as the creditor and the owner of this debt to abolish all of this debt. So the Debt Collective years ago found this sort of obscure line in the Higher Education Act of 1965, which legally states that the Secretary of Education, along with the President, can abolish student debt it means that they can compromise waive or release any right claim or lien something something some other words in the higher education act but it's legalese for if you can issue student loans you can erase student loans and so for the past few years you know we started a, a campaign to abolish debt for for-profit colleges some of the um, the worst you know sort of scum of the um, higher education commodified, Um, complex that we have, but now we're, what we understand is that uh, all of it is illegitimate. All student loan debt is illegitimate and should be erased. So Biden and Trump had this power, Obama had this power, but Biden is the current president and we're calling him to cancel all federal student debt with the stroke of a pen. So he can do that immediately with his student debt, uh, with an executive order. And he actually ran on this. He ran on his campaign by canceling an immediate minimum of $10,000 for every single borrower. And then he promised more. He said, if you went to an HBCU and make under $125,000, your debt would be completely gone. He said, if you went to a public college and make under 125, that he would erase your debt as well. And so on and so on. There's some more uh, other provisions for different types of people. But so this this isn't some, Radical issue as some right wing pundits would 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 have it right. This is a incredibly sensible policy, one that would boost the economy, narrow the racial wealth gap, Um, it would provide COVID relief to folks who need it, and we're calling on a jubilee right there's J. There's a saying that Astra says all the time that debt cancellation has been around as long as debt. So um, this isn't some radical policy, this is actually exactly what we need for our economy for 45 million borrowers who have $1.8 trillion, trillion with a T, trillion dollars in student loan debt for having the audacity of going to college. So, um, you know, there's a couple of um, ties here to the military but I first wanna just emphasize who student debt impacts. I think there's some myths and um, common misconceptions that, the individuals who would benefit from student debt cancellation are mostly wealthy, white Harvard graduates. Um, and that is just exactly not the truth. Um, so what we know is that rich people don't have student debt. right? They're rich, so they don't have student debt. Um, I think if you just think about it for one moment, we realize that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, student debt is already means tested. If you have student debt, that means you had to borrow money from either the government or a private lender because you couldn't afford to pay for college up front and so really what this is 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 a is punishment for being poor right you are not being rewarded for having enough wealth to pay for your college up front and so all of this debt is illegitimate and the people who are bearing the brunt of this crisis in particular are women black women in particular black and brown households seniors older borrowers are bearing this brunt Hispanic borrowers um, in particular, right? Working class individuals are the people that are bearing the brunt. They, black women in particular, and, and lots of Black Americans who are not being paid equitably in the workforce, right? We were we were told that the reason, the way that you can escape racism in the labor market is if you just simply attain more education, right? And now that gap has large that racial gap in educational attainment has largely closed. But what we're seeing is black and brown Americans, you know, disproportionately are burdened with student debts. There's so many individuals who are actually members of the debt collective and who we see online or meet at events who say, I've actually paid back what I owe and I still owe more than what I took out, right? These loans are so predatory, usurious. serious. The interest rates are incredibly high. So that's just a bit about, you know, who is really, impacted by student loan debt. And we just always really reject this notion that there are somehow rich people who have student loan debt. And for the the magical person who is rich and has student loan debt that no one has been able to find, you know, our solution for that is really, we should just tax the rich. Um, So, you know, that can really catch folks on the back end just to make sure that everyone is, you know, paying their fair share. Just to connect this to militarism, um, you know, I was just talking with actually with my dad about, you know, Martin Luther King and sort of the triple evils of um, our entire planet racism, poverty and, and militarism. And we were just having a conversation about militarism and the military United States military is probably has a deep fascination with student loan debt. In fact, just a couple of years ago, about four years ago, the military failed to meet their the US military failed to meet their recruitment goal, they simply could not get enough individuals to um, enroll enlist in the military. The next year, they more than surpassed their goal. And this isn't some conspiracy theory, this is straight from, you know, majors and generals mouths at the US military that they say, we shifted our strategy and we focused on individuals who had student loan debt. That was their way of meeting their recruitment goal. They focused on individuals who they dangle this, you know, what should be a public good, what should be a right, higher education or any education at all. They dangle that in front of individuals and take advantage of them. And, you know, instead of fighting the a war that we should be fighting like climate change, they, um, you know, have these individuals fighting wars overseas. Um, and so, you know, there's just so much evil here, both with student debt and in connection with militarism. And I'm glad to sort of draw this link. Um, they, they really, use student debt as a way to trap mostly low-income people, disproportionately Black people, disproportionately people in the U.S. South into enlisting in the military. Then they tell them that there are programs where they'll pay off their student debt and oftentimes the programs simply don't work. They tell them to enroll in public service loan forgiveness, which is a program that has a 99% um, rate of individuals being denied, right? These programs don't work. And so there's a lot of traps here. There's a debt trap. There is a moral trap. There are several traps here that um, mostly, um, you know, non-white, non-wealthy um, individuals are being trapped into. And so the Debt Collective is here to, you know, along with other activist organizations and some progressive Congress to say, we reject this trap and we need a jubilee and so we're calling on Joe Biden to cancel all student debt we think it might take legislation to cancel private student loans that's a huge chunk of student loans as well but again a majority is held by the federal government so debtcollective.org is you know where you can join the union and that's where we do a lot of our organizing um we're also on social media but um this is really a time where we need folks to take action to call the white house to email the white house to um signed to send the executive order that we've already written for the biden administration to the white house the i saw a TikTok today where an individual started a one signature challenge they printed out our executive order and signed joe biden's um signature um herself which i thought was amazing um if anyone sees joe biden please ask for his autograph so um that's what we're up to i'd love to you know take any questions or i haven't seen the chat but debtcollective.org sure. slash flick of a pin is is where you can see that executive order.
3: Thank
2: you so much uh, Braxton Burrington it's wonderful to have you and Astra the director of uh, Debt Debtors Collective Debt Collective with us tonight. Um can you tell us uh what's going on right now? Now Biden has said he's going to pause it I think until May and, and in essence with these pauses is he canceling some of the interest?
4: Yeah, so March 27th, 2020 is when then-President Trump issued a pause on federal student loans. That pause has continued into the Biden administration through May 1st of this year. So over two years will have passed where federal student loans will have been, the payments have been paused and interest has been paused. Another thing to to sort of emphasize, um, there's some folks who say, you know, Biden doesn't really have the legal authority to cancel student debt, which, We know he absolutely does. But it's interesting to make that claim when Biden is one currently canceling some student debt right now, but also has the broad authority to seemingly unlimited amount of time to pause payments and to pause interest. What we know is, say, for example, you are in a 10 year public service loan forgiveness program and you were in your eighth year in 2020 right All every single month where you've had to pay $0 a month counts as a payment. So some individuals are actually getting, you know, a couple of free months or free years worth of student debt cancellation, which is sort of another, you know, little tidbit that we like to talk about when we say cancellation is exactly what's happening right now, just not at the scale that we need it to. So what we've learned is, is Biden is really movable here on this issue, Um, you know not movable enough, or we would have gotten him to sign an executive order on his first day or his at least first 100 days. But we've been able to pressure him into extending the moratorium not once, but twice. This last time in their press release, they used the word final three times. One time it was in all capital, it was in all capital letters, right? They said, final, 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 the payments won't be extended anymore. And turns out the word final doesn't mean final. It means whatever, is politically attainable at the time. So we believe, um, you know, with this extension that we have 90 extra extra more days to get organized and to pressure, not just an extension to the moratorium, but cancellation. And there's some individuals that call for 10K, 50K, 75. We are saying all of it, every single penny, every dime, every dollar should be eliminated. And Biden can do this. And it's not a one-time limit right he can cancel student debt at the end of every semester until the um until the house and senate pass legislation to have free college so that this never happens again so um we're pressuring the biden administration there was you know some chatter just days before they extended the pause a couple of weeks ago they were steadfast in not extending the pause they said that the pandemic was fine i know they said that the pandemic was fine They said that borrowers knew what they were getting into. And just a couple of days later, after a few tweets and a few news articles, all of a sudden borrowers aren't financially ready and need a couple more months. And I just think it's important for us to remember what that moment felt like and to use that energy to continue to push for cancellation. Because if 45 million borrowers in their communities have all of their federal student debt canceled, that is going to do wonders. I, I just can't tell you how often we hear from mothers, from um, you know parents, from young people and, and old people who say that this debt is crushing. That this debt is 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 such a burden that they are considering hurting themselves. That they are considering selling their home. Right? There's such a backwards um, incentivization in terms of paying off your student loans. People are so desperate. To get this debt off of their shoulders and so what we're calling for is you know the sensible solution which is for biden to cancel all of it so that's really where we are right now um may day would would be the day that loans uh possibly turn back on which obviously has a lot of hiring there with the labor movement but we need to pressure biden to cancel student debt before may right we need to do it immediately so that when may comes along um borrowers and families don't have to make these daunting financial decisions like rationing medication and, you know, selling their homes and all of these other types of things. So that's really where we're at right now.
0: This is Carly Town with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C., and now KPFT-FM in Houston. We heard an incredible analysis and so many great stories today from our speakers who are working to take on the US war machine, climate change, and corporate greed. All of these stories are interconnected and it's a real testament to the fact that our movements must join together if we ever hope to take on the entrenched power of the military industrial complex. Braxton wove the connection between student debt and militarism so well. Right, Both the student debt crisis and the ever-increasing Pentagon budget are all about corporate greed and corporate capture of our government. We need everyone, including the 45 million people across the United States who are saddled with student debt, to recognize that taking on the bloated Pentagon budget has to be central to our movement. With the same amount of money as the disastrous and deadly F-35 fighter jets program, which will cost 1.7 trillion dollars. We could cancel all student debt right now. So if you're as fed up as I am and you want to join us, go to wwwcodepinkorg debt. And if you've listened to this episode and you agree that we need to take on the US war machine and you want to get more involved in our campaign to divest from the war machine, you can always contact us at divest at codepink.org to learn more about our campaigns at the city, university, and congressional level to take on weapons manufacturers in our own communities. Or if you're interested in learning more about our resources, our current campaigns, and more ways you can get involved, you can always check out www.codepink.org divest. And our Divest from the War Machine campaign emphasizes that if we're going to end war, we need to end war for profit. And we need to stop letting our politicians be bought and sold by the very companies that stand to gain the most by an ever-increasing Pentagon budget, right? And if you agree, the good news is you can do something about it. Go to www.codepink.org slash divest congress to contact your representative right now and demand that they stop taking campaign contributions from weapons companies and commit to reducing the Pentagon budget. Again, that's www.codepink.org slash divest congress. That about wraps up our program for today. Again, this is Carly with Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C., and KPFW FM in Houston. Carl- Until next time, cease. Years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's
1: a link. They say cold war, we say cold It's blood for oil, we know
0: there's a link. They say cold war, we say cold pain. Go pain.